the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In February, Barry Connolly scooped the award for Business Person of the Year at the fifth annual Irish Times Business Awards. He joined me at the time for a wide-ranging chat about his life and career. Barry is co-founder of Nutrition Bar Fulfill, which was sold in April of last year for a reported €160 million to confectionery giant Ferrero. I started by asking Barry how he felt after receiving his award. Shocked. No one was more shocked than me, Kieran, to tell you the truth. When I heard I was in the winner's enclosure, it was quite a moment because it was amazing group of companies, amazing group of people up for the award. So, and then particularly when you're there in the mansion house on the evening and you look around and you see the other people who were there and the other companies where there's some really, you know, very successful Irish companies and household names in terms of people who've built businesses. So I was delighted, uh, but fantastic award to win. It's not like the whole fulfilled deal, as you may have, you know, I was explaining to you before, it's kind of halfway over because we did, did the deal in Europe with Ferrero, but we were still running the deal with Hershey's in the United States. So it's not as if we stopped when we did the Ferrero deal. So I think the award from Bank of Ireland, the Irish Times, it really was a kind of a moment to put a foot on the ball and stop for a second and say, actually, you know, this really was pretty significant because we just kept going straight from the Ferrero deal on a plane to Pennsylvania to try and speed up the rollout in the United States which has been pretty, you know, pretty impressive. Well, you were chosen as Business Person of the Year for a good reason. And the reason was the success of Fulfill, uh, and we'll talk about that, and this <clears> deal with Ferrero, uh, €160 million. Uh, Euro. Allegedly. Allegedly. And you're the majority shareholder, so you're a very mm. wealthy man now, mm. uh, no doubt. And as you mentioned, you still have the North American mm. uh, business to go. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, maybe in a few minutes, but let's just talk about Fulfill um, first of all. Where did it come from and what is it about Fulfill bars? Um, what's so good about them? I think what really sets them apart from the other protein bars is they have an incredible taste. So a lot of the other protein bars, the whole idea originated in the United States maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And it, the background for the bars was pretty much people who, who were spending a huge amount of time in gyms. So protein powder had been a big part of gyms forever. And everybody knew the benefits of taking protein. The reason people in gyms take protein is that when you're lifting weights, you're actually creating a micro tear in your muscle. And if you consume protein straight after the exercise session, it helps the repair of the muscle and the muscle actually gets bigger. So people who are very into that lifestyle knew the functionality of protein. And then the guys who were taking the powder said, hey, we can get the functionality in bars. But it was all very functional. So they never focused on brand names. They didn't focus on packaging. And they definitely didn't focus on taste. And I could see from being in the United States on other businesses I owned that when you walked into a store on a street in Manhattan, or even you go into Hudson News at JFK, you'd see half of the space was given over to traditional confectionery and half the space was given over to brands that you didn't see in Europe. You didn't see them in Dublin, didn't see them in London. So brands like 12, you know, nine years ago, you'd see 
Power Bar, you'd see Kind, and you'd see Quest protein bars. So I could see these were getting half of the shelf space, and the traditional confectionery, your Mars and your Snickers, were getting pushed further and further down. So I was kind of getting interested in the whole idea, and I approached the Quest people, but I couldn't do a deal with them to get into the Irish market. And I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy called Paul Byrne, who owns a gym in town, and he was saying, hey, Barry, yeah, they are functionally, they're great, but they taste terrible. Why don't you make a better-tasting protein bar? And that's what we did. So when we got the taste right, then the other thing we were very conscious of is because they were coming from a weightlifting background, they were very male-orientated, what we would refer to as him and the gym. So they had names like Power Bar and Crunch and Quest. And we thought maybe we should come up with a branding that was more inclusive and less male-orientated. And then we'd come up with the, the colors, the packaging. It was just bringing the marketing playbook to a product category that had purely been built for the function. And that's really why it worked, because it opened up, it opened up protein bars to regular people who may not be going to the gym, who just wanted a healthier alternative. And it became what we would call permissible indulgence. You could actually eat a full fill bar and not feel bad about it afterwards because there's only one gram of sugar in it. It's half the calories of a regular confectionery bar. And with the backing of a company like Richmond Marketing, which is the largest independent brand building company in Ireland, we were able to build great visibility for the bar right from the get-go. So within about three months, it looked like it was a huge launch from a, a Mondelez or a Mars or a Nestle. But that was built really just by great visibility in store. So a lot of things came together at the right time. Our timing was great. And you just kind of brushed over the fact that you got the taste right. How did you manage to do that? I mean, it's not an easy Turned thing to down do. the first 13 uh, samples that came back from the co-manufacturers. The first sample was absolutely appalling. Uh, and we just kept turning them down and not accepting until we, we knew it was a perfect taste. Um, so it was just really knowing that a protein bar could taste really well if you just put the effort in. And we were we knew the kind of confectionery bars we'd all grown up with. And we wanted a protein bar that tasted just as well as one of those confectionery bars. So what's in it? What's the secret ingredient? Secret ingredient, there, there's, a, there's a good amount of um, protein in the actual bar. There's 20 grams of protein in the bar. Uh, so there's also sweeteners in there, but not sugar. So you're getting a sweetener in there that actually gives you the sweet taste, but it's not the sugar hit that you would get. So the calories are much lower. Very high quality caramel, very high quality chocolate. And just a really good tasting bar in a, in a very nice package. Like the color of the packaging is very carefully chosen. The name Fulfill is a really interesting name. And then when you do walk into a store, because the colors are so vibrant, they really jump out. So when you're at the front door of a, an outlet and you're looking towards the confectionery, with that kind of, you know, with those yellow colors, you actually know it's Fulfill before you can even read the letter letters on the bar. Like it's just, we basically own that yellow color. And it became a great word of, of mouth sensation. People were buying it and people were saying to friends, hey, you've got to try this thing. This is really an amazing bar. So that's really what helps mm. when, you've, when you create a product that people want to talk about and want to recommend to their friends. And like Richmond Marketing's big initial win 27 years ago was Red Bull. But Red Bull is the kind of product when you tried it first, you'd actually become a missionary for it. And you'd actually say to your friends, hey, you really have to try this. This is amazing. And we've, we've done that with a number of different brands as well. We did it with Copperberg Cider back in 2007. So Bulmers in Ireland owned 
apple cider. We came in with this Swedish brand called Copperberg, which initially was a pear flavor, flavor, but then we expanded all the different fruit flavors. But people would actually taste it and say, hey, you, you, know, you really should try this or buy one and try it. So those kind of brands, maybe one in a thousand brands have that uh, element that people will want to actually say to their friends, hey, you really have to try this. And when you find those brands, the last thing you really need is a huge advertising campaign because the best uh, communication is one friend recommending it to another. So when did Fulfill go to market? Fulfill launched in January 2016. That was the first year. We thought we might sell 60,000 cases in the first 12 months. We actually sold 600,000 cases. So what was the big breakthrough? Who was the first big customer or what was the big break for the brand? The, be- the first customer to, men- to list it was Circle K. And there was a buyer out there who was very supportive. And uh, he subsequently stayed with us and other uh, companies he's gone to. And we launched it at uh, the uh, Circle K outlet at Dublin Airport in January 2016. Circle K rolled it out very quickly. Apple Green rolled it out very quickly. And then we got into a lot of gyms, and then the big retailers took it on. But like within about 12 months, every little coffee shop uh, seemed to have discovered it. There were vegetable shops selling it, butcher shops were selling it. It was just became a real word-of-mouth phenomenon, and nobody quite seen anything like it before. Some of the American protein bars had kind of filtered in. So you could see Quest in some stores, and you could see Power Bar, and then through Lambia, you had the really kind of, you know, had your Neutromino and the really hardcore protein bars, but nobody'd seen anything quite like this. It's almost like if Red Bull had decided to create a protein bar, they would have created Fulfill. And that we'd learned so much at that stage from working with Red Bull for 20 years. So really, we just brought a whole lot of consumer marketing insight to what had previously been just a functional product mainly developed by people who came from a gym background and weren't consumer marketing people. Now, you mentioned Richmond Marketing Group, and that's your other company. Tell us about that company, where it's come from, and the relationship, if you like, with Fulfill. Richmond started in 1992. Uh, So I started Richmond Marketing in 1992 with uh, an adult soft drink called Clearly Canadian, which was a very nice flavoured beverage from Vancouver. So on a Wednesday afternoon, I imported from Belfast, uh, two pallets of um, Clearly Canadian. On the Thursday, I sold it two pallets to Egan's Cash and Carry. And then on the following Monday, I bought 10 pallets. And I just started bringing Clearly Canadian into Ireland, which turned out to be very successful. On the back of that, I met a guy who ran Gilby's in Ireland, a very nice guy called David Dand. And he asked me, would I take on Aquilibra and Ame, which were adult soft drinks within the Gilby's portfolio. So over about the next two or three years, I built a portfolio uh, back in, you know, between 92 and 95, the biggest portfolio of adult soft drinks uh, in Ireland. But like, it was like being the biggest pygmy in the jungle because there was no category. There was tiny category. But it set me up for Red Bull. So I found Red Bull in 1995. But because I was in the Clearly Canadian business, the Aquilibra business, the full or the Purdy's and Norfolk Punch and Ame business, I was a natural fit for Red Bull. So I found Red Bull. I saw it initially at an adult soft drinks conference in Birmingham in 1995. I was then in Thailand about three months later. I had another business importing garden furniture and garden pots and selling those to Atlantic Home Care, Dunn Stores and Musgraves. But I saw the Thai version 
of Red Bull, the original version, which is Kratendang. So I just happened to be in Bangkok on another business, and I saw this brand, Kratendang, which I re- recognize as Red Bull from the show in Birmingham 12 weeks earlier. And I, instead of getting off and flying back to Dublin from uh, Asia, I just went to the Red Bull head office on the way back in London and basically said, look, I'm not leaving because they'll sell me a container. So I bought the first container in April, May of 1995, and it took about two years to get going. But by 1997, Red Bull had really started to kick. And since then, it's just been a very big success in Ireland. On a per capita basis, it's one of the top five countries in the world. So it's in about 180 countries around the world. But Ireland has always been a very good market for Red Bull. And then with Red Bull working, I then went on and did other deals. I became the partner in Ireland for Copperberg Cider and for uh, the Asahi Beer Company. So we have Asahi Beer, Asahi-owned Peroni. I'm the partner for William Grants. So William Grants of Tullamore Jew and Hendrix Gin. And then I'm also the partner for Fever Tree. So if you have Hendrix Gin, Fever Tree is a great mixture with those. So we built a portfolio of really cool brands. And then uh, in 2008, 2009, we were selling 400,000 cases of Copperberg in Ireland. And in the UK, Peter Bronsman, who owns the the Copperberg company, was selling about 20,000 cases. So I said to Peter, look, let's set up a company in the UK and let's, I'll put in money, you put in money. Let's hire people who only sell Copperberg because he was working with a distribution partner in the UK. It really wasn't working. So Peter and I set it up and that company now sells about 11 million cases a year of Copperberg in the UK, turns over about 190 million sterling just on Copperberg. So it's the second biggest uh, cider business in the UK after Strongbow. And you're still a shareholder? Peter, I own 43% of it. Peter owns the balance. So that was, that's, I, that was set up in 2007. So really what you're doing is you're looking around the world and you're saying, okay, what brands and trends do I see that I could sell in Ireland? If they work... You're saying, okay, and I've got a great case study here from Ireland. Could I take these into the UK? Because there's 60 million people there. And then what we've been doing since 2015, 16 is saying, look, that's great to have a great to have a good distribution business in Ireland. It makes sense to use that as a stepping stone into the UK. But wouldn't it be great if we could use our own distribution businesses to create our own brands? Because that's where the real value is. The real value is an owner brand ownership not necessarily in brand distribution. So we were looking around for, I, about 15 years ago, I had created a red vodka called Mark's Red Vodka, which I, I, I had, you know, I created it. I did it with a couple of guys who had been involved with uh, Grand Met, who had been the guys who designed the Bailey's brand, a guy called Tom Jago, who was a great uh, alcohol creator. It didn't work, but I always had the idea of why wouldn't I have my own brands? And in 2015, we were working on three different projects. We were working on an Irish whiskey called Prize Fight. We were working on a, a Dublin beer, craft beer called Dublin Blonde. And we were working on a Quest-style protein bar called Fulfill. And we launched them all in 2016. And uh, no one's ever heard of Prize Fight or Dublin Blonde. And everybody's heard of Fulfill. I have heard of Dublin Blonde. And maybe, mm. I, I don't know why, yeah. um, but I definitely have heard of it. Mm. I can't even tell you if I drank it. It was a very nice beer. It was a nice idea. And at the time, craft beers were cropping up everywhere. But the interesting thing was Dublin didn't have a its own craft beer. Little towns around the country would have their own craft beer. But the idea was, why wouldn't Dublin have its own craft beer? And if you want to kind of cement it as a Dublin proposition, 
why not call it Dublin Blonde? So that's what we did. It was a good idea. But craft beer in Ireland hasn't been as successful as craft beer in other countries. It's struggled in Ireland, uh, whereas in the, in the UK, United States, craft beers have really got a niche. But fortunately, from my perspective, Fulfill took off. And like in this kind of venture capital business, if one out of three works, that's a pretty good batting average. And Fulfill worked in spades. Yeah, sure. So uh, Dublin Blonde is gone. I wouldn't say it's gone. It's kind of resting. We might bring it back. Price Fight is a really interesting Irish whiskey brand. And I think we'll definitely bring that back. Or we, we, we've kind of parked it because we got so so busy on Fulfill. But Prize Fight is a really interesting brand. And the guy who designed it for us is a guy called Steve Grass, who owns a company in Philadelphia called Quaker City Mercantile. And if you know anything about the spirit business, like people would have seen Hendrix Gin. So Steve was the designer of Hendrix Gin. And people who'd know rums, rum, dark rum is the next kind of cool category. So there's an incredibly cool brand called Sailor Jerry's, which Steve designed that. So Steve had been hired by a distillery to create the perfect gin, and he created Hendrix. But he got paid a fee for it. But Hendrix went on to be hugely successful. So we went to Steve and said, look, Steve, we want to design an Irish whiskey for for us. We're not going to pay you, but we'll give you 20% of the equity. But we just want a perfect design for an Irish whiskey. And he created the whole prize fight concept, which I still think was brilliant name, great design, lovely bottle, great kind of history to the kind of edgy too, because it, it's modeled on, if you remember the gangs of the Martin Scorsese movie, Gangs of New York, there was a gang called the Dead Rabbits and there's a pub in New York called the Dead Rabbits. But the whole ethos behind prize fight is dialing back to those prize fighters of that era. So creating an alcohol brand that ties back to bare knuckle boxing is a pretty edgy thing to do for an alcohol company. So it had a lot of, it's kind of, kind of goes back to talkability. Like when people in a bar would say, oh yeah, this is kind of edgy. Do you remember see the Martin Scorsese movie, Gangs of New York, The Dead Rabbits? So it actually gets people talking. And we probably would have put more effort into it, except uh, Fulfilled just took off like a train. And mm. that's, you know, when something takes off, you've got to get on board. And, you know, you don't get many chances to do these things. So you've got to get behind it and make sure you give every chance of success. Well, Conor, Conor McGregor did well out of his proper 12 whiskey, didn't he? He did, yeah. He seems to have done incredibly well out of it. I think he sold it now. I think he got, a, he got an amazing price for it. I'll continue my conversation with Barry after the short break. Back in a few moments. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Okay, so how big, at the time of the sale, how big was Fulfill? Uh, what you know, level of revenues were you generating? How many bars a year were you selling? Oh, what, what was the footprint? We had quite quickly, we've got to a million cases in Ireland. So there was a million cases of single bars. So they weren't multi-packs. So for 70 years, Cadbury's 8 Square, which you guys would have grown up with, that was the number one single skew. And it would have had about a 16, 17% share of all single bars sold. And within three or four years, we passed that out in value with Fulfill. So we just had a ridiculous success in Ireland to a million cases. 
But a lot of the international confectionery companies were saying, oh, yeah, this thing is a fad, it's not going to work, and hey, we'll just bring out Snickers with protein in it, we'll bring out Mars with protein in it, and that'll keep people happy. And that didn't work. So they kind of underestimated the consumer interest in protein bars, in, in confectionery-style protein bars. But the challenge for us was to get a second market where it was successful, because otherwise it would be perceived, well, you know, Richmond is the largest independent brand-building company, but you can't replicate that in every country around the world. So it was important for us to get a second country where we could make it successful and be seen to be successful. And when you're in Ireland, in Europe, the, the UK still is a hugely important market. If, if you make something work there, it does tend to set trends for mainland Europe. So we knew we had to win in the UK. And we hired some really great people to come in. Unfortunately, they hit, they landed around... Uh, March 2020 when COVID hit, but they were actually amazing people. Within about 18 months, they got it up to a run rate that showed it was going to be a million cases. When we sold the company, we sold the rest of the world company, excluding the United States, uh, Canada, and Mexico. We're up around 40 million euros. So we've grown it from nothing in six years to five years to 40 million. 40 million euros in revenue. In revenue, yeah. And profits? wasn't really that profitable because... We never took the money out. Like, if I was to take the profits out, I think the first year we took a dividend out, but if I was to take the profits out, then I'd be saying, okay, I've now taken the profits out with Fulfill, and I now need to look around for other things to invest those profits in. There was nothing better than Fulfill to invest the profits in because it was going to be a hugely valuable company if we, got, if we broke the UK and we got the turnover up, and that's what we did. We actually went out looking to raise money for private equity to do the U.S. But when we went to the private equity firms, the word got around and we were approached by a number of what are called strategics. So the st strategics are the big players in whatever industry you're in. So we were approached by Ferrero. And in the height of COVID, we got on a plane to Luxembourg to go see the Ferrero guys. And they just loved the brand. And the rest is history. Yeah. Now, you were a co-founder of the business, mm -hmm. weren't you? Um and what happened to the other founders? Because there there were reports of a dispute and an out-of-court settlement and, and so forth. What happened there? there? There was a dispute and there was an out-of-court settlement. And even if you read the interviews those guys gave, basically the fundamental uh, issue was the company was profitable. My view was that we should take those profits and reinvest for a bigger prize. Their view is, Barry, we need to get money off the table. It's fine for you. You've done very well in the last 20 years, but we want money off the table. So those guys actually wanted money off the table. And I wanted to double down and go bigger. Uh, so AIB came in, the guys were bought out, and they were happy to go. And then we went on and just built it from there. And at the time when COVID hit in 2020, like our business fell off a cliff. So at that point of 2020, you would have said, listen, anybody who bailed in 2018 probably did the smart thing, but actually came back very quickly post-COVID and then turned out to be a much bigger deal than we, any of us had anticipated. Yeah, like, sure. I didn't expect, quite frankly, to, that Ferrero would come to the party in 2021, 2022 with such an interest in purchasing the company. And it definitely didn't look like that when COVID hit in March of 2020. How bad was COVID for the business? It was appalling. Like, particularly, we didn't have multi-packs and we didn't have a supermarket business, not a big supermarket business. We were huge in impulse. By far, our biggest channel was Four Courts. 
But when COVID hit, like our sales kind of dipped by about 80 or 90% for about eight weeks. So that was really challenging. It was also challenging because all the brands in Richmond marketing were having the same. So we were hit on the fulfill side and we were hit on the Richmond marketing side. But in a situation like that, you just have to keep going. And it seemed appalling at first, but it actually, you know, we came out of it reasonably well. But it was, they were tough days. They, How did you survive? How did you adapt or pivot? Uh, there was a serious change in management within the Fulfill company. Up until that stage, I had been the chairman of the company, but I had to get very hands-on in the middle of COVID. A lot of senior people had been hired to do an international rollout, and those people had to go because we had to batten down the hatches. And I think, the, in hindsight, the international rollout taking on multiple countries was never necessary. All we actually had to do was maintain our business in Ireland and win in the UK. That in itself was a big enough indication that a major confectionery company could take it further. So we basically what we had to do was batten down the hatches, ring fence the cash, because what you're always afraid of in a situation like that is you run out of cash and get people motivated. And you know, I think a big change was hiring a very good chief executive in the UK building a team around that person and not spreading our resources and our investment in seven countries around Europe and in the United States, but going to the casino and saying, it's all about winning in the UK. We know we have a great product. We know we have a great, great brand. If we can just get the right people and invest behind those people, that will give us the win in the UK. And ultimately, that's, that, that's what turned out. That's what happened. So you sold to Ferrero, but how come Ferrero didn't buy the North American business? Because in 2019, we were raising money in the, in New York. We were working with an investment bank called Jefferies. Jefferies had lined up meetings with about 13 or 14 private equity firms and one strategic, and the strategic was Hershey's. So the head of M&A came to the meeting listened to the story, left, uh, had my business card, rang me half an hour later and said, listen, I'm uh, cancelling my flight. I'll get the next one. Come and meet me. So I met him and he had this brilliant line. He said, look, Barry, Hershey's is the biggest confectionery company in the United States. We've, we've laid our track all over the United States. You don't have to lay track. All you have to do is put your carriage on our track, which was a great line. And I said, fair enough. And uh, we sold them a percentage of the company, the overall company, and we entered into a joint venture with them to do the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Well, when Ferrero uh, approached us, uh, Hershey's were very keen to stick with it, and they really liked the business, they liked the brand, and Ferrero were uh, impressed enough to say, look, we'd love to buy the whole company, but we're happy to do a deal for Hershey's keep their interest in North America, and we do the rest of the world. So Richmond Marketing now is the partner for Ferrero as the distributor on the island of Ireland. And I'm the co-owner of Fulfill in the United States, Mexico, and Canada with Hershey's. So it's kind of split. So Hershey got a, a check as a result of the sale to Ferrero? Yeah, Hershey would, would, have, would have shared in, the, in that. They would have got their, they have a small shareholding in what I call the mother company, and then they have a slightly bigger shareholder in, in the joint venture in the US. So yeah, they got, they got their check. So what's the holding in the JV? They're holding the JV. It depends on turnover, but they're holding, and the, the turnover is going up every year, but they're, they're holding in the JV be roughly 15 to 20%, depending on how the high they get the turnover in 23 and 24. 
And you own the balance? I own the balance. Okay. So what's the plan for North America? Just keep rolling it out. Uh, we, we Our sales in 2023 will be about 12 times higher than they were in 2021. In the last nine months since we sold to Ferrero, um, we've been over there. I think I've been on seven different trips around the U.S. We've got listings in Walmart, Kroger, Target, 7-Eleven, uh, Vitamin Shop, uh, we think we're about to land Publix this week. So Hershey have said in terms of taking a proposition to retailers, it's the quickest rollout in terms of acceptance at head office that they've ever seen. So the retailers really like it. Now, there are protein bars in the United States, but they all tend to be very functional, and not a great taste. And once you bring in Fulfill and you have the same functionality, but the taste Actually, people kind of react very well to it. So that's a, like you know, my sense would be we're only halfway through the game. Like we've had the first half of the game. There's another 45 minutes here to play in the US. So you, you say it's 12 times higher than 2021. What was uh, what was 2021? Yeah, uh, one twelfth of today's figure. Like accurate <laughs> figures there, Kieran. I don't want to be disloyal to uh, the Hershey guys. Like it was a very small base in 2021. But it's it's heading now towards a serious brand, like anything. So many bars uh, will you shift in the US this year? Oh, probably. Well, we we think in terms of cases of twelve. So I'm always kind of focused on the million. Uh, uh, we get to a million cases, we'll be up around two million cases. We're only that's only the start. And a case is twelve bars. Twelve bars. It could be so twenty four million, million uh, bars. But like the US market is just so enormous. Like, and we are getting. The way they measure the U.S. market from a distribution perspective is how many doors do you have? So like a 7-Eleven would have 11,000 doors. So when you go to a head office and you do a deal, it's not like going to a retailer in London or a retailer in Dublin. If if your meeting is successful and at the end of the meeting they say yes, you're talking about 11,000 doors. Like the, the scale of the market, it's the U.S. is one-third of the world's confectionery market. So this could be a very big deal. If people in the U.S. react the same way to fulfill as they have in Europe, I think you mentioned forty million revenues mm, uh, in, when we sold. When you sold, okay. Mm. Um, so when does the you know what time frame does the U.S. get onto a par with that? I'd say um, within within twelve to eighteen months. Okay. So, uh, and we're not in any hurry. Like, so within 12 to 18 months, your North American business could mm-hmm. have the equivalent of 40 million in sales. Yes, and could have the potential to go an awful lot higher. And I'm not in any, any hurry to sell. So it's a very good business, and Hershey's a very good partner. And Ferrero are a fantastic partner for the rest of the world. So we've got two of the world's biggest confectionery companies who love Fulfill. Okay. It's a bit confusing, though, isn't it? Having Fulfill owned by one group over here and by another group in uh, in the rest of the world. Well, it's all about the consumer. No consumer ever went into a supermarket and said, I wonder who owns the company. All they think is, do I like the brand? Is it a good taste? Do I want to... But we've different tato, uh, tato owners, north and south. Yeah. And, you know, the, the packs look different and the taste is uh, different and, and so forth. Um, no, and maybe I'm, maybe people don't realize it. I think Tato's the exception there. I think a Mars bar, a Snickers bar in New York is the same as a Mars bar and a Snickers bar in Navin. Tato is the exception. 
That's the odd man out, I would have thought. I think it'll, people's tastes are pretty universal. Okay. So Ferrero don't want to take this to, they've accepted they're not going to be able to take this to North America? Well, they're currently working on the rest of the world. Like I'd say, if Hershey's decided ultimately that they didn't want to buy it, I think Ferrero would say, well, look, you know, if you don't want to buy it, Hershey's, well, we would be interested because instead of having a rest of the world proposition, we have a global proposition. Because America is the biggest confectionery market in the world, isn't it? America is the biggest single confectionery market in the world. Yeah, third of all world confectionery. And Hershey's are incredibly, like we don't really appreciate it here in Ireland because Hershey's products aren't really that. Besides Reese's Pieces, you don't get a lot of them in Ireland or in the UK. But in the United States, they are they dwarf Mars, they dwarf Mondelez. They, if you want to pick a partner who's got great railroad track, it's Hershey's. We, we were slowed down though by COVID. I think it would have moved quicker if COVID hadn't hit. But COVID you know, slowed everybody down. But now the, the Hershey people are 100% behind Fulfill. So like there's another, there's another game. There's not a half a game in this, you know. I'm sure there is, yeah. It's, it's just a curious one that Ferrero is willing to sort of say, no, that third of the world, uh, that single most important confectionery market in the world, ah, we won't bother with it. Yeah, it's unusual, but I, I suppose what it does is it shows how keen they were to get involved for the rest of the world because they saw the opportunity. Like if you've got the Ferrero railroad track all over Europe and all over other parts of the world, if you've already built that distribution and you come across a winning brand that's perfect for the consumer and the consumer loves, you putting that extra carriage on your railroad track is a very good business model, and that's what they're doing. It's just Hershey's, that's what Hershey's are doing. If you if you ch- went down to say, who are the best partners to build a global brand within 10 years? Once And then once you've done it in Ireland, proved it in the UK, and then you say, okay, if I want to go global and have a global Irish brand, who's the best partner in America for confectionery? Hershey's. Who's your best partner in Europe? Ferrero. And actually really good people to deal with. Like Giovanni Ferrero, really you know smart guy, passionate about his business, no airs and graces. Michelle Buck, who runs uh, Hershey's, really nice lady, super smart, one of the most successful uh, managing directors of an American public company. Incredibly easy people to do business with. Mm, okay. Tell us about Barry Connolly. Uh, where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Your parents, what did they do? Oh, grew up in uh, Monkstown, went to CBC Monkstown, went to UCD, to BCom, left within two days of getting the BCom, ended up working in Ohio. Dayton, Ohio, for a big retail company. Came back, got a job, first job in the Sunday Tribune when I was 22, first job in Ireland. Worked there between 22 and 28, 29. Worked for uh, worked with Vincent Brown and a, you know a lot of journalists who you guys would know, but uh, had a great boss, a lady called Barbara Nugent, who was the managing director of the Sunday Tribune. Went on to be the managing director of the Sunday Business Post when it was in trouble. Did a great job there. So like to get working with those kind of people, particularly Barbara, between 22 and 28, was a really good grounding. And selling advertising, which is what I was doing, I started out selling advertising, and then as Barbara moved on and became, she was marketing director, and then she became managing director, and then I became marketing director. But if you can sell advertising, it's a great experience. You can sell a lot of things if you can sell advertising. So I had a great run there, and then I got involved with uh, some guys, got a radio license in Dublin, a license called Radio 2000, and I was hired to set that up, and that, was, that became 98FM. And about nine months later, I bought a radio station with an Australian guy in Cork called Radio South, and we relaunched that as 96FM and sold that to John Magner and J.P. McManus. 
and then in 1992 imported clearly Canadian into uh, into Ireland, which circles back to where the story started. So I've only ever worked in startups. I never worked in anything else. Like the Sunday Tribune was a startup, 98, 96, Richmond Marketing's Fulfill, they're all startups. Your dad, what did your dad do? My dad worked for Course Troctala, and he had a transport company in Ireland and a transport company in the north of England called Richmond Transport. So he was providing the warehousing and transport for various products. So when I sold 96FM, he had warehousing and trucks. And what I did was look for brands that I could import. I found clearly Canadian, but then I used his warehousing and his trucking to move my products to to stores. So I kind of tapped in to his physical distribution network. And a bit of a an entrepreneurial bent there. Himself. He was an entrepreneur. He yeah. he had transport companies, freight forwarding companies. He had a, a share in, in a company called Three Rivers Oil in Kilkenny, which was a, an authorized distributor for SO for one third of the island. So he'd all that growing up, that was the conversation at the dinner table. It was just a natural thing for me to do, to um, have my own business. I never really wanted to work for anybody else. Uh, and I was always kind of, any, any time I was working for anybody else, it was just a stepping stone to have my own business. And that's where the Richmond name came from? His transport company was Richmond Transport. And it was on Richmond Street, just behind O'Connell Schools. So I just called my company Richmond Marketing. It's a nice name, it's a good name, Richmond Marketing. And over time, the transport companies kind of closed down. It's a, transport is a really tough business. So the Richmond Marketing kind of won more brands and developed, and uh, the transport side of things kind of kind of faded away. We sold the oil company to Jones Oil about 15 years ago and focused on, on building brands. And how come a calm to sales? Oh, a lot of people who go into sales will do a, a BCom. Like you, you either do, uh, you know, do sales and marketing, or you do accountancy. Uh, so I could make disparaging remarks about accountants, but it's I won't. So you know, you either BCom is traditional for you know if you want to go into accountancy, if you want to go into sales, if you want to go into marketing. So for me, it was just uh, that was my that was what, what I liked. That was where I felt comfortable. So your time in media obviously brought you into the realm of uh, Vincent Brown and oh, yeah. Dennis O'Brien. What were they like to work for? Oh, Vincent was incredible guy, uh, super smart. Uh, he attracted some of the best journalists ever. Like if you look at the group of journalists he had working there between 82 and 89, um, it was just an amazing group of journalists. Um, Barbara Nugent, as I mentioned earlier, was fantastic on the commercial side. Tina Roach, who was working there at the time, Martin Doby. There was a great group of commercial people a great group of journalists. Uh, that was a fun time. Dennis uh, work, Dennis O'Brien was an interesting character. Um, he, he was running a satellite shopping station in London when he got the license for Radio 2000. And he had a, a very good radio consultant, a great guy called Peter Benson, who he had met in the Sky setup because Peter Benson was working for Rupert Murdoch as the general manager of the building phase of Sky. So Dennis persuaded Peter Benson to come to Ireland. Peter met me and Peter and I set up what became 98FM while Dennis was running the satellite shopping thing. So, you know, Dennis, that's unfortunately for Dennis, the satellite shopping thing went bust. So he came back to Dublin and um, I went on with Peter and we bought the radio station in Cork. So look, Dennis was a mercurial character. Uh, Vincent is an, an interesting character. So there were interesting times. 
Right. Okay. But you always wanted to work for yourself. Yeah, and, I never but, really liked working for other people. Okay. It obviously took you a while to sort of get to that point. Well, I was 28 yeah. when I set up my own company. Yeah. So when I, when I bought into Radio South, I was 28. When I set up Richmond Marketing, I was 30. So and I was still relatively young. So are entrepreneurs, are they born or created? What's your view? I think a lot of it is how they're brought up and the example in their family and how they treat taking risks. So uh, I think my, my, my upbringing was don't be afraid of risk. If you see something you really want to go for it, just go for it. So I think like, when I went to UCD, they just, Frank Roach had just started a course on entrepreneurialism. So I took that course. And a lot of guys did, but I, I still think in me it was more in, inherent. Um, so to answer your question, I think it's a hard thing to teach. Some people are just, um, they like risk. They don't, they're not uh, intimidated by it. In fact, they're probably excited by it. And they also would be quite resilient. Some people, if it doesn't work, and many things I've tried haven't worked, but it doesn't really bother me for that long. I just kind of get up and start again. Are you an investor in a lot of other... I mean, you have a lot of money now, so what are you going to do with it? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I, I've invested, been investing in things for 20 years. So, yeah, I've got investments in different businesses. Uh, I've got investments in New York. I'm shareholder in a couple of bars in uh, Wall Street and Greenwich Village. I have uh, investments in businesses in the north of Ireland where I've invested in quite a lot of buildings, which are uh, hotels, bars, restaurants. So yeah, like, but I'm, most of my time, I tend to invest in my own businesses that I trade myself, as opposed to uh, you know passively investing. So I, I'm kind of like I like to invest in things that I have control in and I understand. I don't really like passive investing. So how would you describe yourself as a boss? What's your leadership style? Uh, I do not micromanage. Uh, I would I like a kind of a flat organization. I like to motivate people to you know be the best they can be like in in my company in the last 15 years i, I what i tend to do is if i see a new opportunity i'll say okay look let's spin this out of the richmond company and i'll say to guys who've worked with me for maybe five or six years listen we're going to spin this out i'll fund 100 percent. you can have 20 percent, but you've got to run it because i haven't time to run it so i've done that on many an occasion with many a business and it, it tends to have worked pretty well for me. And if you think about competing for talent against, say, Procter & Gamble or Heineken or Unilever, I can make that offer to people that if you come with me in five years' time, we can spin out a company, and I've done it 11 times already, so go and talk to those 11 people. If you're hiring for Diageo, you can't make that promise to a potential recruit. And from my perspective, having those kind of people highly motivated because of their 20% is actually a pretty good business model for me. What they don't have is the cash and they don't really want to go home to their partner and say, let's mortgage the house. I, I have a dream. Whereas the way I do is I say, look, we can actually do this and you don't have to mortgage your house because I'll fund hundred percent, but this is your one chance to get it right. So this is a really big deal. They went up people who are pretty motivated. So, you know, so how many successes versus how many failures? So how many far? hits and how many misses? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of forget about the misses. I kind of focus on, there's been some pretty good hits, like uh, Richmond Marketing is a, is a good business, Cider Sweden in the UK, the Copperberg business is a good business. Fulfill clearly 
has been a very good business. The two bars in New York are very profitable. The investments in the north of Ireland in the entertainment business have been good. Price fight is work in progress. Um, Dublin Blonde it probably wasn't uh, successful. It wasn't successful financially, but it was great fun. Did it with two guys who were really good guys, really enjoyed working with them. So by and large, though, like it's got, it's got to be fun and it's got to be profitable. And, you know, if it's not profitable, it's not much fun. But, like, at this stage, it's got to be a fun thing to do, and it's got to be a profitable business. Your top tip for a young entrepreneur listening to this uh, who has an idea, maybe, uh, and, you know, just doesn't quite know how to get it over the line? Just, you know, what my dad would have said to me, just go and do it. What's the worst thing that can happen? If it doesn't work, you get up the next day, you dust yourself off, and you keep going. It's not cancer. Just, you know, just be resilient. I think people who are resilient will get on with it and they'll probably try two or three times. Like I set up 98FM in Dublin and the spoils went to other people. I set up 96FM in Cork. I got some of the spoils, but most of the spoils went to other people. When I set up Richmond Marketing, that was my third attempt. And, you know, I was very, I, but I couldn't have done Richmond Marketing if I hadn't gone through the struggle of the Sunday Tribune, 98FM in Dublin and 96FM in Cork. That was an 11-year, 10 or 11-year period of really hard graft. But I learned so much through the hard graft that when I set up 90, I went to set up full, uh, Richmond Marketing in 1992 when I was 31 years of age. Like, I'd really been through some pretty hard graft. So I was pretty focused on, you know, just getting it, making it work and making sure it was successful. So I was quite resilient. So be resilient and back yourself. And what's the worst that can go wrong? Barry Connolly, Irish Times Business Person of the Year. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Barry Connolly for joining me on the show. Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.